Welcome to JFK in the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 137. You know, things in life are highly interconnected. We hardly notice that until it becomes, well, problematic. In a nutshell, that's exactly what happened in Cuba. A whole host of actions and reactions, some unrelated to begin with, eventually becoming part of a web of events that would ultimately connect in various ways to the story of the JFK assassination. President Eisenhower took office in 1952, the same year that Batista, just a few months later, took over Cuba in a brutal coup. Let's face it, things had been brewing in Cuba and totally tumultuous in some ways for a long time, long before then. It was a society that throughout the 20th century had forged ahead and dropped back in a series of successive social convulsions, always in a state of turbulence. Some of it was simply attributed to the gestation of a new democratic approach to government, but it was yet to be anything close to a republic. (laughs) A banana republic? Yes, but not a true republic. The economics of the island were still dominated by U.S. business forces, and having a strong man like Batista to calm things down wasn't all bad for the U.S. In fact, at that moment, it looked pretty good. And after all, he was the architect, or at least in some ironic twist, a sort of a shepherd to some extent for the Cuban people when it came to passing the 1940 Constitution, a bright spot in the quest for a democratic society in Cuba. What more could an American president, an American big business, hope for? This entire wander, these last 10 or so episodes, was designed to give you a bit more of a ground-level perspective on how things got so screwed up in Cuba. For everyone, and more importantly for the citizens of Cuba, and not just us here in America, and more approximately for American big business that dominated the island. Yes, there was good that came with their involvement, but there was the usual ills that come with their involvement, too. And then, on top of everything, there was the Mafia, who took their own generous cut, which accelerated in the Batista years. And then there was Batista himself and his corrupt government on top of all of that. 
It was a terrible cumulative burden for the island and its people to shoulder. You see, it's silly to think that a handful of soldiers led by Fidel Castro could flip the island upside down and take over a military-led regime headed by Fulgencio Batista. What they flipped was the switch of the Cuban people. The revolutionary actions in and of themselves were a tempest in a teapot. That certainly was the case if they had been a minority of thought. But all sewn together, all these actions, as crudely constructed as they were, but finely tailored to fit into the puzzle and take a role in the interconnection of it all, well, it all worked perfectly to arouse the hearts and the minds and the souls of most Cubans. And so, all that together, interconnected, would result in revolutionary explosion. And it would propel Fidel with just enough wind in his sails to topple Batista, a Batista that had himself lost whatever little bit of the hearts and minds of those Cubans that he might have had. The hearts and minds of Cubans and others that, perhaps in the beginning, were at least tolerant of his coup, if not supportive of it, including outside forces such as the United States government. And Castro's calculated actions would be elegantly filled with just enough deception to keep the Eisenhower administration totally asleep at the switch. Asleep at the switch as the largest pivot in the history of socialism and communism ever having occurred in the Western Hemisphere before or since was about to unfold. Only 90 miles south of the United States, on an island that should have ended up by almost all the calculus of history as the 51st state. <laughs> or perhaps, more accurately, the 30th state in our union, if you use 1850 as that approximate pivotal moment. Yes, at that moment, it would have put Cuba just ahead of California when it comes to the chronological list of states entering statehood. What a thought, huh? Think back to those moments in our earlier episodes. That's exactly why we went on this wander. So what happened? It was a colossal miss by the Eisenhower administration and the CIA. But give Castro his due. He was both brilliant in his deception and lucky, too. If we were to sum it up in a few paragraphs, we would say that he seized power at the moment that the Cuban revolutionary spirit, the spirit of the people, had reached its height and the outside support for Batista had been withdrawn. Because Batista himself responded with such brutal force, the sum of which, on top of his coming to power in the first place, using a brutal coup, were enough to turn the tide of the people against him. And the mob, as much as it had hold of the power structure that was Batista, well, their fortunes were tied to him. And as Batista goes, so goes the mob. They were never up for a war, not the kind of war that is waged by revolutionaries. Now, the mob was no collection of dummies, and they too, after having the best years ever in Cuba in 1956 and 1957, nevertheless saw the handwriting on the wall. They could see that the revolution was inching closer to Havana, their concentrated stronghold and their asset base for the most part. It got bad enough that 
they began to contemplate a move of the entire operation to the Dominican Republic or even other places. But you can't pick up a hotel and move it. And they were about to lose the biggest set of investments they had ever made in the history of the mob. You could also see that they held out hope that Castro, who was not yet an avowed communist, at least publicly, would see the light and see what they brought to the economy. And in the end, they thought even Castro would follow the money and let them stay and operate and maybe even let them own or at least let them have their cut. So if not cautiously optimistic, they were at least hopeful. What else could they be? Castro, for his part, was perhaps less organized but more practical. Only, he was not the only one in the picture that is driving the ideological thought machine in the revolutionary movement. He was heavily influenced by Che Guevara and also by his brother Raul and also Camilo Cienfuegos. All of these men were essentially already hardcore communists. He kept them quiet in his quest for control of the country. But once they had control, these men were unleashed. And it would only be a matter of time when their voices would be heard clearly. And if you're already taking the road that has a gradual left bend in it, it's not that hard to pull the steering wheel just a bit more in the same direction and turn it into a hard left turn, which they did. By the time the Eisenhower administration woke up to the fact that Fidel Castro did not believe in democracy and that he was going to drive his imperialist causes to an extreme position, a position that would stamp out and make extinct any American presence on the island, it was too late. There was nothing to be done with the new man in charge. We were already headed down the path of a terrible ending. The table was just getting set for the rest of this brand of passion play to unfold. For the United States to come to the realization that they, too, had lost control of the island and that Castro was too radical to leave in place and that he would have to be removed. And the nail that sealed it was the mass seizure of U.S. assets shortly after the taking of power. And all of this occurred in 1959. And it was combined with the mass killings that the Castro government engaged in shortly after taking power, a purge. And it reassured the already skeptical lot of Castro observers that they were right on, that this man was just another brutal dictator replacing another brutal dictator, just another brand of poison. But this time, even more poisonous given his communist leanings and the idea that Cuba would be the first big domino that had fallen right before our eyes, the first domino in a landslide of socialism and communism that was about to take the southern portions of the Western Hemisphere. So what could be done by the United States? The Neutrality Act prohibited an outright invasion of the island by U.S. forces, and to be sustainable, any toppling of the government, whatever government, had to be done in a way that wins the hearts and the minds of the people. That is, if you want it to be sustainable. So it had to include Cubans themselves. So that led to the Bay of Pigs. And the fiasco of the Bay of Pigs 
became one of the most symbolic defeats of democracy in the 20th century, right there on the southern shores of Cuba. And that, in turn, translated the very next day to a ball of revolutionary fire that Castro used to ignite the fuse of socialism. The very next day, he stood before the Cuban people, indeed the world, pointing to the American transgression at the Bay of Pigs. And he declared to the world that Cuba was now a socialist state. And that led, of course, to a silent and secret war between the United States and Cuba, which then led to the only, and quite natural, next chess move for Cuba. To woo the Soviet Union into a relationship with the rock star of the Caribbean socialism and Marxism scene, Fidel Castro. Castro leading the way in the Western Hemisphere and developing relationships with the Soviets that locked ideological views in place, securing a path to communism for Cuba in exchange for basic economic support that was essential on the island in order for the Cuban people to survive and for Fidel to stay in power, because without that, he too would not have lasted long. Because, after all, the U.S. was gone now, and whatever you thought of them, Whatever you thought of us, someone had to replace that economic engine. Or as I said, Castro himself would not have survived. And besides, for Castro, those Soviets and those East Germans, well, he knew that they knew how to lock down a society in its early goings, KGB style, and to ferret out those that are not of like mind. Just what was needed in the early years of establishing, well, another social dictatorship, the dictatorship of Fidel Castro. And inviting the Soviets to the table, even for just some help economically, lit a fuse inside the U.S. government that was going to go off somehow, some way, with a rather loud bang. So the failed Bay of Pigs led the Cubans to seek military defense from the Soviets, and Khrushchev responded. He placed 43,000 Soviet troops on the island, along with nuclear missiles, in order to thwart the stated threat from the United States that apparently was so obvious to Fidel. And all of that, in turn, then led to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the closest the world has at least publicly gotten before or since to an all-out nuclear war, and a war that would affect the United States mainland for sure, if it had ever occurred. So you see, the story of the grandma that you heard in the last episode, that little boat was not a journey made in isolation. It was interconnected in ways that finally led to the largest nuclear showdown in the history of mankind. Castro's nine lives almost cost the world all of theirs. And you know, there was a moment where Castro's advice to Khrushchev was to unleash the arsenal, the nuclear arsenal on the United States. Regardless of the daring stories that we tell about this revolutionary, he was not a good man, this man Castro. And history should tell it all, the good and the bad and the ugly, and the net of it, because the net of it is surely bad. He was something more than a garden-variety dictator. But in the end, in my mind, he was just another dictator.
And of course, the ultimate tie-in of all these interrelated and interconnected events is that once Castro got control, we tried to take him. As a nation, we tried to assassinate him using all sorts of harebrained schemes that you'll hear about in upcoming episodes. And of course, our going after him meant that he would go after us, or more specifically, our president. Okay, it it wasn't Kennedy or Eisenhower jumping off a boat and wading into the swamp and heading off for the Sierra Maestra. Well, it wasn't Castro either who got on a plane and went to Dallas to shoot at Kennedy. But the real question is whether all of this and the very public statement made by Castro a short time before President Kennedy's death, his statement that the U.S. should stop trying to kill him or else U.S. leaders would be in danger of reprisal. Well, whether that was true and whether the logical connection of these events actually occurred or whether that statement is just another fantastic and amazing coincidence in the story that is the JFK assassination. Well, all of that and more is what we're here to explore in the episodes that come. Some Cubans in some way, whether rogue elements or something more, played some role in the assassination. Who they are, what side they were on, well, really, who knows? But we have a lot of time to explore the likely possibilities of that. One thing we do know, there was hatred of Kennedy for the Bay of Pigs fiasco and for other reasons, too. And that created a cauldron that would make it easy to assign motive to the anti-Castroites, the Cubans, who wanted their island back from this new dictator and who were undermined by the failed incident at the Bay of Pigs. Well, as usual, we've gotten way ahead of ourselves here. And today's episode will rewind the tape just a bit. We'll replay a little of the pre-January 1959 facts that then propel us right into Castro the Socialist, who nationalizes the U.S. assets and finally begins to show his true colors to the world. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 137 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. If you've ever been around very powerful men, you know there's something about the way they view the world, especially when they're on top of it. They, first and foremost, have some form of a feeling of invincibility or perhaps at least a form of supreme confidence. And I think for a time, Fulgencia Batista felt that way, despite all the tumult that was around him. If you consult the historians on it, There are many different historical opinions about whether Batista truly understood the reality of the situation that existed in Cuba, particularly as he entered 1958, in the period just before his own ouster. 
Batista had engineered the national election in 1958, an election that would elevate his hand-picked successor, another puppet, and he himself would plan on stepping down in early 1959 at the end of his term. He would be retiring from public life. But the 26th of July movement denounced the elections as downright fraudulent. And the United States itself was hesitant to endorse the legitimacy of the elections in the declared successor. Let's face it, things were closing in on Batista. As bad as it was getting, Batista still thought he could pull it out, make it to the end, engage in a publicly smooth transition, and reinforce that he was a man of democratic principles and not a dictator. That he was a man that would support the orderly transition of power and hand the mantle to a democratically elected successor. All that would guarantee some dignity for him personally and perhaps even a better legacy in the longer run. Batista was a former military officer too, and he was counting on his corps. That is, he was counting on the military to continue to back him fully. That would not be the case here. The final nail for Batista really came in early December 1958, when the head of the SIM came to Batista and he would reveal that he had uncovered a plot that was within the army and it was connected to the highest levels. It was serious as it was a plot that involved General Martin Diaz Tomeo. This was the man in the military that perhaps was most trusted by Batista. Tomeo had put his efforts behind Batista during the coup of 1952. And it was largely because of Tomeo's efforts that Batista made his way back to power. This conspiracy involving Tomeo was a mortal blow to Batista. A member of his own brethren, a Judas in his most intimate midst. But Batista was still tough as nails himself, and he had Tomeo arrested, and the entire plan was intercepted and stopped. Nevertheless, it was a confirmation that within the army, real dissension and planned sedition had set in against Batista. And it was getting worse in terms of the day-to-day progress that Castro and his rebel troops were making. In some ways, the Castro plan was a simple one. Begin the revolution almost everywhere but Havana, and win the hearts and minds of the peasants in the countryside, gently sweeping from west to east across the island, and toward Havana, eventually bringing the entire wave of the Cuban people to the last bastion of the Batista stronghold in Havana. It was almost surreal for Batista, his government falling piece by piece and now in an accelerated fashion all around him. On December 17th in the afternoon, the U.S. Ambassador to Cuba, E.T. Smith, paid Batista a visit at his palatial estate at Kukwine. As things got worse in December, the U.S. government was putting pressure on Batista to resign. This would be a face-to-face with the U.S. ambassador with the intent of delivering the U.S. government's official position. Batista was attempting to preserve relationships with the Eisenhower administration in light of all the uncertainty. But he was unwilling to step away and especially to do it under some of the various proposals that the U.S. State Department was putting in front of him, including the idea that some of Castro's junta would be involved in the interim government or that Cuba would 
generally be governed by some form of committee that included members of the 26th of July movement. Smith would later write in his own historical record that Batista was subdued during their visit. The ambassador himself had historically been a significant supporter of Batista, but the State Department had already internally begun to split its opinion and have a diversity of view, and most thought it was hopeless in terms of the future for the dictator. Overall, the State Department wanted Batista gone, and Smith was to deliver the message. He would sit inside of Batista's large estate, inside of Batista's large library, where so many power meetings had taken place over the years, and he would deliver the power message. And it would start with a reminder that the U.S. had been a longtime supporter of Batista. He would refer to that particular sentence years later as the Vaseline before inserting the stick. It felt like death, surely, to Batista as Smith was delivering this message to him. Smith later would recall that he even recognized the slight irregularity in Batista's breathing, as if the Cuban dictator had been kicked in the testicles. As we know from prior episodes, Batista had made a home in Daytona Beach, Florida, and he had wishes to go back there upon his exit from the island, if that was to be his fate. Smith would have to deliver more bad news and tell him that the situation was so hot at that moment that the United States could not let him back into the country, at least at that moment. And Batista would have to try to make his way to Spain or perhaps the Dominican Republic. There were no promises, but Smith would go on to tell him that if things settled down, it would be possible at some later moment for him to go back to Florida and come back to the United States. El Mulato Lindo, as he was known, a man who had reached incredible heights in this lord and vassal relationship that he had with the United States government, had now finally outlived his usefulness. I wonder if he, in this moment of disbelief, realized that the revenge would be a simple one. He would walk away out of Cuba in possession of $300 million of ill-got cash stolen from the people of Cuba through his corrupt relationships that extended in hundreds of directions, including all the tie-ins to the mob. It was a two-and-a-half-hour meeting, and it was difficult for both of them, but Batista's willingness to talk about the safe passage for his family back to Florida was enough to confirm to Smith that the reality of the circumstance had actually finally sunk in with El Presidente. It was probably true that in the very beginning, Batista was some form of benevolent dictator. But in the end, he became a brutal purveyor of power and corruption. A gangster, really. His own survival was clearly more important than the fate of the nation. He would leave with a stash of funds and not even tell his longtime partner in crime, Meyer Lansky, what he had intended to do. Not only would the mob be unhappy with Castro, but they would be equally unhappy with the man who was exiting, Batista. Despite the impending doom that was about to be heaved onto Batista himself, it was December. There was a Christmas atmosphere in Havana. Christmas lights abounded in the capital city. The tourist season in general in Havana continued as if it was unbothered, progressing in a surreal fashion, even though the entire regime change was potentially about to happen on the island. 
people were acting as though there was no real danger. At the Riviera Hotel, one of Meyer Lansky's properties, rooms there were near total occupancy, and the restaurant was going gangbusters. Under the circumstances, it was truly extraordinary. On New Year's Eve, Lansky himself faked an ulcer attack so he could be with his mistress, Carmen, while his wife left in the company of Eduardo Suarez Rivas, a longtime associate of the Havana mob and the mob's attorney for the Riviera. She would dance the night away with Eduardo. Lansky and Carmen, along with Lansky's driver Jamie and his girlfriend Yolanda, would make their way to the Plaza Hotel to have a late dinner after one of Lansky's late meetings. The Plaza was built in 1909, and it's a beautiful old and posh hotel. And in a more recent development, the mob had just obtained a casino franchise and opened a casino operation there. And that operation was jointly owned by Joe Stasi and his son, Joe Jr. They were also in partnership there with Angelo Bruno, who was a mafia boss from Philadelphia and one who had recently bought into the Havana Syndicate. It was a very special place, the plaza. Lansky wanted quiet in a more secluded location. When they got to the plaza for the first time, Lansky's driver would recall that it seemed as though something was happening. Something was going on. Everything was tense and disquieting. Meyer Lansky said to Jamie earlier in the week that the Barbudos, the bearded ones, are close to winning the war. It was an unusual remark for Lansky to make about Cuban politics, and particularly to Jamie. Lansky openly offered that he wasn't sure how it was all going to go, and whether the Barbudos would take a position regarding the casinos that would allow them to stay open, or whether they would immediately shut them down. This was an incredible thing that Lansky was making comment about, and yet Lansky seemed, well, almost sanguine. Lansky chose a secluded and a low-key environment to have dinner that night, perhaps anticipating that these events were coming. With New Year's generally being a more raucous event for everyone, no matter what, uh, New Year's Eve in Cuba was not without fanfare for most people. Although the party in some shape was still going strong at about 1.30 a.m., suddenly there was an appearance made at Lansky's table by Charles White. White would approach the table and whisper something in Lansky's ear. White was an important member of the Havana mob. Moments later, the two of them were headed out of the room to have a more private conversation outside, and they would motion to Jamie to stay back so that what they would say to each other would remain private. Jamie would keep a close eye on the boss, and moments later, Lansky would be back, and he would look at Jamie and utter the words, He's gone, and the Barbudas have won the war. The use of the word he here was clear. Lansky was referring to Batista, and Batista was the man who was gone. That would set off a series of escalated actions that Lansky knew they needed to take immediately. First, they would take the women home in a short taxi ride, and for safety purposes, he and Jamie would then choose a more secure car to take out of the available cars at the plaza and not use the convertible that he was used to driving. When they got back to the plaza, Lansky would immediately speak to the manager, 
letting him know that Batista had left the country and that they were now instructed to bifurcate all the money on the premises, separating U.S. dollars from Cuban dollars, and then including all the cash reserves and any other monies gathered from the floor operations, and that they were to take them all, bring them immediately to Joe Stasi's house for safekeeping. Lansky and Jamie would then go on a tear, making the rounds to all the casinos that they had responsibility for and for repeating this process at each location. And they would do it because they knew that in the morning, the Cuban people would take to the streets and one of the first places that they were likely to try and tear down in the zeal of that revolutionary moment, a moment that Lansky keenly knew was surely coming, was the casinos. At about 3 o'clock a.m., they headed first to the San Susi nightclub and casino. By this time, the streets were abandoned, and they were driving at speeds of upwards of 100 miles per hour. Lansky would meet Santos Traficante there and deliver the same grim news about Batista's leaving and the victory by the Barbudos. And he would give Traficante the same operational message that they should separate the monies and take it to Joe Stasi's house for safekeeping and that Traficante should go to the other casinos that he had connections to and do the same thing, and do it quickly because at dawn, the crowds were going to fill the streets and there was nothing and nobody that would be able to stop them. Casinos should be closed. Lansky would go into the Casino Nacional and then onto the Riviera after leaving the San Susi as quickly as they could. Interestingly enough, Lansky's advice to management to close the casinos was not heeded timely enough, and both the San Susi and the plaza remained open and were fully trashed by the public throngs that gathered in the early morning hours of New Year's Day. People in Cuba didn't wait till dawn to take to the streets in Havana. By 4 o'clock a.m., news of Batista's departure had begun to spread, and people began to leave their homes and gather spontaneously in the streets with every kind of cheering and singing. Many people got into their cars and they honked their horns and in a more traditional way, they would just pick a bucket up and pound it with a stick. There was noise and joyous celebration everywhere. But of course, as does happen so often with crowds that are in the midst of these kinds of moments, things began to turn ugly. And then before you know it, there were sporadic clashes between the police and the rebel forces who had come out of hiding at that point to begin the process of taking over the city now that Batista was gone. In the Central Park, which was just across from the Plaza Hotel in Havana, there was a shootout, one that started between the rebels and members of the Las Tigre. Other shootouts would occur in various places in the city and people on the streets ran for cover. One of the first things to go was the parking meters. And why was that? Well, because the public knew that Batista's brother-in-law, Roberto Fernandez Miranda, had the patronage regarding the parking meters. Meters that every day would commandeer monies, cents at a time, from the Cuban people. And it was common knowledge that this money was money that went directly into the pockets of Batista's brother-in-law. The crowds used baseball bats and pipes and hammers to completely destroy these meters and then hold them up over their heads in triumph. Some went as far as beating the hell out of them in order to get them to crack and take the coins. It was a brutal act on an inanimate object. 
It was not done for the change inside. Cracking them open and tearing them apart was an act to do away with one of the most iconic and ubiquitous symbols of corruption in the city. All hell was breaking loose everywhere, and a group of revolutionaries charged the Capri Hotel and began to demolish the casino. One of the rebels aimed his machine gun straight at the bar and fired away, sending a barrage of bullets, and it shattered bottles and glass and destroyed the bar with pieces of glass and wood bursting and sent flying in all directions. It was pandemonium. In some ways, it was a big surprise for some that the public went so hard after the casinos and tried to destroy them. Certainly, there was the isolated fervor of the moment, but it seemed as if there was something more in the air. The crowd shouted death to Batista, death to the collaborators, death to the American gangsters. The pivot that society was making at that moment in Cuba went well beyond the corruption that existed in the government itself. Whether it was the U.S. government or the corrupt and compliant Cuban government, or it was the gangsters, the violent public at that moment made no distinction between them and had no never mind. All of the above were fair game for retribution. Thank you for listening to episode 137 and join us in episode 138 and we'll pick up this story right where we left off today in a continuation episode. 